Hey, would you open your Bibles with me uh, to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, and you can hold your finger there and in uh, Revelation 21 as well. We're going to just read these two back to back. And while you're turning there, this, we, we just started this journey talking about heaven, and it, I'm not sure that we've done a, a series, mostly because I don't do a lot of series, but, but also because I don't know that I've really gone into something um, in the scriptures like this specifically to teach, but by being immersed in it is literally like changing me. Like this has been a super impacting moment. I've just literally been immersed in the topic and the uh, conversation and uh, the biblical truth of what, uh, what heaven is. And if you were not here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast of it because we sort of set the tone of heaven and uh, what happens immediately after we die and as opposed to then what's going to happen, you know, life after life of when we resurrect and be with him forever. And, and what I'm reading to you today uh, from Colossians 3 uh, is a little bit of him talking about now, the heaven now, and then Revelation 21, we're going to flip gears and probably pop the clutch. So I hope I don't kill it, but we'll keep going. Uh, we're going to go right into Revelation 21, which speaks of the heaven that is to, to come, okay? So Colossians chapter 3, verse uh, 1. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So if you're wondering what he's talking about, it's heaven where Christ is seated. And by the way, later in the scripture, we see that we are seated with him in heavenly places. That's all. We'll get to that. That's an amazing promise for us of heaven on earth. Set your minds, verse 2, on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. It's not that we can't think about here, but it's where we set our mind. Do you know what I mean? Like, you've set it, you, like when a hook is set into a fish, it is hooked in. He's saying hook yourself with heaven, not with earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your uh, life, appears, then you will appear also with him in glory. So he's speaking of now and what is to come as far as heaven is concerned. And then in Revelation 21, verse 21, and if I would encourage you this week, man, just if you, you know, whatever else you're doing with the Bible, camp out in this one a little bit. Because we talk about imagining heaven, as much awesomeness as the Mercy Me song is, this actually gives us the whole thing, like right here, this is a, a, an imagination of it that is as best we can understand. And that, by the way, is what, he's going to use words like, and it's like this, it's like that. It's like trying to explain the Grand Canyon when you're three years old. Like, it's huge. <laughs> Your lexicon fails you. And the, the best lexicon that I have, the best vocabulary, the most expansive language on earth still could not grasp what he is saying and what he is seeing. And so he says in verse 21 that there were 12 gates. There were 12 pearls. And each gate made of a single pearl. Imagine the size of that oyster or clam. What, what makes pearls? Oyster. I grew up in Nebraska. We don't know those things. We use costume jewelry where I'm from. <laughs> the great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. In verse 22, he said, I didn't see a temple which would have absolutely blown the minds of the Jewish people that would have read this because God had to dwell in a temple among men. And he's saying, I don't see that anymore. 
Maybe you can almost see him. I'm looking around, but I don't see a temple. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun nor the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Think about that for a minute. Like the king, there will still be kings, and there will be kingdoms. This is a fascinating thought, isn't it? On no day will its gates ever be shut, which would have absolutely blown their minds because in that day they would shut the gates at night for safety. When we go to Haiti, when we go to different countries, they'll shut the gates to the hotel at night for safety. He's saying there's nothing to be afraid of. The gates are always open. The gates of Jesus are always open. The glory, verse 26, and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, speaking of not a salvation by works, but a salvation by his work. Our names are written in his work, his book, and when we walk in, we will be spotless, we will be clean. Oh, we could just go home on that. And then he goes into chapter 22, he talks, this is him basically talking about Eden being restored, another imagery for us of where Adam came from. The angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb, of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Lord Jesus, would you give us uh, insight into that this morning? Such a, just a, a powerful idea of what it is that we will experience one day, and our words fail us but would you write your will on our hearts and on our minds today? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. I've really uh, felt the weight, not in an unhealthy way, at least I don't think so. I might need to talk to my counselor about that. But I've, not in an unhealthy way, but in a weight of this is kind of important because heaven properly imagined, properly digested, if you will. I don't want to say understood because I don't think we can. Becomes a strength for us. It becomes, it's a courage for us and a motivation for us. And so throughout the next few weeks, I'm going to play some, some videos and some interviews and uh, it didn't come this week, but next week, hopefully it'll be, I ordered uh, 50 copies of a book called Imagine Heaven. And it was a pastor out of Texas that took the time and the trouble over the last few years interviewing people that have had near-death experiences and come back to tell about them. And it's potent and it's powerful. And the, this video that I want to show you right now is, is one of them. It's a guy named Captain Dale Black. And this is actually the book that he wrote. He's a pilot that, uh, that survived a plane crash. And this is just a tiny snippet of, of an interview with him and, and his experience in heaven. Did you, did you see Jesus? Later, I did. That was the last thing that happened after going through the city and asking questions and 
going through at the very last moment, I had been ushered closer and closer toward the light, toward the light, toward the light. The light that's in the center, center of the city. Yeah, and then there was a stairway that was near the glass sea, which it looked like a sea, and a stairway that went up, and a large angel with the most uh, power, if we would say that, and it was clear that he was basically in charge of that stairway. And uh, I be just began to communicate uh, to this angel heart to heart. Again, it's hard to say, did we talk? It seemed like it, but then it seemed like we didn't. This communication was, was just impeccably pure. And I began to recognize, I can't go up there. I can't go up. I, I can't go up and still go back. And I was thinking, go back, go back, what, what, what do we mean, what's that mean? And as soon as I'm thinking, go back, the angel moved just to the side. But I looked into the eyes of the warmest, kindness, most wonderful. I knew this was the son of God. I knew this was my savior. And all of a sudden, my knees buckled, my legs lost their strength, and I just went down. I couldn't stand. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was not worthy to... I was not worthy to stand in His presence. Funny that I didn't feel worthy to be in heaven, yet I knew I was worthy in the early part. I was somehow given this, granted this authority, but I had this supernatural... Uh, gift that I was worthy. Somebody had done something for me. He had. Yes. And so I'm down on my, just falling down, and I see his feet, and I grab them, and I hold his feet, and I see the scars, and I know this is the Son of God. He's my Savior. He's my Lord. It is because of him. He died for everybody. It's so cool because the Bible even says, no, I just take that back. Jesus said that uh, I have come not to condemn the world, but that the world through me will be saved. And it was because of that. He was, he's not condemning anybody. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. What sins you've done, including murder, it doesn't matter what you've done. All of it is, re, is forgivable. God can forgive anybody of anything. And then we have this free gift that we call salvation. You and I know about it. And that's it. what you felt and at his of feet. Course, like. I just, but to describe this experience, I just stopped at his feet and, and I was worshiping him in down on the ground there. And I heard the voice, Dale, do you love me? <laughs> That's it. Do you love me? Mm. And I'm trying to think of all these words to say. And I'm getting ready to say, in a sense, I'm getting ready to say, but I've said nothing. And I'm getting ready to say, of course I love you, Lord. I remember who you are, what you do. I'm getting ready to say that. And he bends down and whispers into my ear. And I'm now back. 
I mean, <laughs> yeah. We have a um, cadre of people that have, because of technology, because of whatever reason, I'll share a video next week with Dr. Mary Neal, who died in it. And these are, by the way, there are lots of stories. I'm intentionally choosing ones that you could think, okay, that's a brain surgeon, so it's kind of hard to argue with. He, he knew his brain was dead, and there was no. But I wanted to play them because I... I I feel like anything we can do to evoke the ideology of heaven and what it really means that there's a motivation, there's a courage, and there's a strength that comes from it. It's hard this side of uh, the planet because, I don't know, maybe that's when Jesus talked about a rich man being impossible to get into the kingdom of heaven. Thank, Thank God the next verse was, oh, but with God all things are possible. He's talking about us. When you're walking on streets of plastic in Port-au-Prince, it's not hard to think about, no, I don't love this world. We live in Williamson County. I love this place. But you know why Demas left Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 4? Paul's at the end of his life, and he says, send for John Mark. He's been good for my ministry, which is a mind-blower because it was John Mark that sold him up the river 20 years earlier. He says, Luke is here, everybody has abandoned me. And he says, Demas has left me. He abandoned is the word that he used. Because he loved this world. And he used the word agape. He agape love, the God kind of love. He gave a love that was only due God to this world. And we can get confused because we think, that the, and it is awesome, but the, the best that this world has to offer he paved the streets with it. Reminds me of a joke. <laughs> a man who was on his deathbed and he was negotiating with God as men do and he was a wealthy man and he was negotiating God saying, look, can I, you know, you, you can't take anything with me but can I take something with me? And he's like, I'll give you a one suitcase so in this deal, I'll make an exception. And so he shows up at heaven and He's got a suitcase he's holding on to with both hands because it's so heavy and it's so full because he's loaded it with gold bars from his safe. And he gets to the door and apparently they have airport security, I'm not sure, but they were scanning his bag. And they open it up and like, dude, why did you bring pavement? I'm sorry. If NBC poll is right. 90% of the people in the country believe in life after death. That includes Dr. Oz, it includes Oprah, and it includes most people in this room. Only 75% will actually believe in specifically heaven. And I think of that 75%, a vast majority of us wonder, okay, if someone comes back and if they're saying something that Jesus didn't say, is that really... It, and I would caution you to say that when you see something on a TV show like that, that the angel, uh, the Satan, it says, could appear as an angel of light. So if someone comes back with a message that Jesus told them, but it's not what Jesus has said, you can be very cautious of that. But on the other side, when someone comes back and says, no, Jesus told me, I forgive you, I, you know, salvation. When it comes back with a message that agrees with what scripture has already told us, we can latch onto that and say that. I don't want to base the doctrine or build a church on that, but I can, I can hook that one. That's another hook in me 
for the kingdom of heaven. The strength, the courage, and, and motivation. And the doctrine of heaven itself, the idea of heaven itself is something that, I mean, we've been here seven years, and how many times have I taught on heaven? None times. And it's because it's not a common thing, and I've really felt a real conviction about that because that's every motivation, courage, and strength that they brought in the New Testament. When Paul says, keep your mind on higher things, he's in prison. The book of Revelation was written by John, who had already, they already tried to boil him in oil like a tater tot, like a fry daddy for people. He survives. They put him on an island. He's writing to a group of people who are persecuted, and he shows them heaven. And for us, when we keep our minds on that, those long days and longer nights, when we know that there's something ahead, it, it, I think it gives us a significant amount of courage. Courage, a guy named Rodney Stark wrote a book. It's something, if you, if you got like 10 hours that you're never getting back, it's fascinating read. I learned when we did our little personality types. Apparently that's normal for me. But I'll, I was saying, when you read a book like Rodney Stark, he talked about the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And he's a sociologist. He's not a believer. Just trying to systematically and scientifically prove why uh, Christianity grew in the Roman Empire. And here was his thesis. Actually, I'll save you. You don't even have to read it. I'll tell you what he said. It took like 500 pages to say what I'm about to tell you. He said that because they believed in an afterlife, that they believed this life was a prelude, the, the early Christians, in like the first century were like 6% of the population, but within 300, 200 years, they were 50% of the population. Two plagues went through Rome during that period of time and wiped out 30 to 40% of the population, significant parts of the population. And he said this, that the doctors, that the pagans, and he didn't use it in the pejorative sense. It was in a factual state. That was what they called themselves. They were pagans. It was a, whole, it was a different religion, a different thing. That they, they didn't know anything about this disease other than if I was in proximity to you, that I could catch it, so I'm out. I'm out of dodge. So what happened in this was during the first and the second plague, that people, and he refers to a, a doctor named Galen that was in some of the history books that were recorded in Rome, that when they, everybody left, the doctors, like, we, we left, the Christians stayed behind. And what they learned was that in that plague that 50% of the people, if someone would just stay and care for them, it would save them from dehydration, from malnutrition, that 50% of them actually would survive if they had proper care. So on the pagan side of the culture, vast majorities of the people were dying. Christians, less than half of their population died, which meant they grew, and in the middle of that, pagans in that culture began to believe on Jesus because they saw their own fathers and mothers and sisters leave them. And here's what he said. The reason that he believed that they stayed was that it didn't require as much courage as it would have for a doctor that believed that this world was the only thing you got. If you believe that this life was a prelude and there was something else, then it made total sense to stay and to love and do what Jesus said and it's not that they didn't have courage, it's just that they had a different kind of courage. It was fueled by a realization that this life is not our own. When the Ebola crisis was at its apex a few years ago, the one thing that the, the general media didn't focus on much, but it was true that 
almost all of the doctors and nurses that stayed behind were Jesus people. If you've been on the front lines of a disaster, which I have been, how many of you remember the Nashville floods, right? Anderson Cooper shows up three weeks late. FEMA shows up. If you were in that, you realize it was just a drudge and process. But you know who were there? Jesus people. And you know how you knew it? They all had their matching T-shirts on. <laughs> they were right there. Cross point. They were everywhere. And every day, I remember that first year as a pastor, they were like, are you a pastor or are you a disaster relief guy? Because we'd just been through an earthquake and then now this flood. And, and the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Because Jesus people go to the front lines It's what happened in Katrina. It's what happened in Tuscaloosa. It's what happened in Joplin. FEMA eventually gets there and they ball get down in red tape and they do what they do. But the Jesus people, when everybody else is running out, are running in. Now, are there those who don't know Jesus that go? Yes. But the numbers do not lie because it requires a different kind of courage that actually has to go against your own belief if you don't believe in heaven, if you don't believe in God. Because if you don't be, then it's survival of the fittest. They weren't fit enough, tap them out. Everything else is intellectually dishonest. But to stay behind, because did some of those people die in early Rome? Absolutely they did. But if this life was just a prelude, who cares? You think 2,000 years later, let's snap of time, they're not bad. They're like, oh man, we got totally hosed. <laughs> no, it, was, but it makes sense. It's practical and it's true. They didn't do it because it would grow Christianity. They did it because it was right. They did it because it was true. Sometimes what's practical and what's true are mutually exclusive ideas. But when Jesus is in them, they are not. What is true is also what is practical. So it gives you the courage. When Grady Pickett, who was in here in October, told the story about ISIS coming to Erbil. Do you remember this? Right? Put that in your pipe and smoke it. He's like, They're coming, but we felt Jesus telling us to stay. If you were there, remember when I asked him, were you scared? He was confused by the question. It wasn't a language barrier, it was an idea barrier. But God had called him to be that, and because of his belief of heaven and that this life is just a whisper. You remember when we, we asked Becky, what about your children? And she said, we told them, you know, Do you remember this? I'm going to get the quote wrong, but we just knew we'll see you on the other side. Five, six, seven-year-old kids. And there are people right now in Erbil, Iraq, money that I'm proud to say, money that we have sent that have been financing the rescue of brothers and sisters in Christ because it just makes sense. It's just practical, and it just gives you the courage to do it. And it doesn't just give you the courage, but it also gives you the strength. And I was thinking about that idea of strength and the power to actually buckle up under it and to be strong like Grady. And and by the way, let me say this something parenthetically, because whenever I say something like this, somebody's going to feel, because this is how Satan works, all right? This is not new. I feel guilty because I didn't go to Iraq. I feel guilty because I'm not that and you're this shame thing and Jesus never speaks with shame. He never speaks with fear. When Peter jumped out of that boat and walked on water, how many of you have heard the sermon? Because I actually preached it a long time ago. Not here. I'm happy to say not in the condo days. All the other disciples missed out because they didn't jump on the water. 
And oh, what, how their lives could have been so great if they would have only jumped on the water and followed Peter. But think with me, Jesus didn't ask them to step on the water. They would have sunk like a rock. They'd been gone swimming in the sea because Jesus didn't ask them to in that moment. That's why comparison with each other is such a demonic and damnable thing, but comparison to Jesus is what gives us the strength of what he has asked us to do. He has never, you get to heaven, one of the questions will not be, did you do what I told Ashley to do? <laughs> why didn't you do what I told Ashley to do? Well, I mean, it's silly, right? Strength. Paul used this idea of strength because he compared it. He compared his current suffering, the streets of Port-au-Prince paved in plastic, he compared it to heaven. In Romans 8, he says, I, my current sufferings, now keeping in mind his resume, I've been snake bit, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, I've been abandoned. And then he goes at the end of it, I love this, and then I got to worry about all you people. Because <laughs> he's the pastor, he's like the, the weight of the, that's his resume, but he says, I count all that as nothing compared to what I'm going to get. Nothing compared to the thing that is to come. And when John starts saying it's like this, it's like that, it's, again, trying to like a two-year-old to explain the Grand Canyon, his lexicon fails him. If you've been to Alaska and you've taken the pictures and you've come back to show them, are they not underwhelming? <laughs> I used to, when I'd go to these places, when a long time ago when I'd travel, I'd be... And we saw it in Israel, by the way. I mean, Phyllis, you've probably seen this. The people, especially when you give a bunch of old people selfie sticks, and we were all old people, and they gave everybody a free selfie stick. So what happened was all those old people run around with the selfie sticks. And the entire Israel was through this lens of this camera. And they're going to get home, and they're going to be so disappointed because it's not the real thing. And I, thankfully, I've been at it long enough that I put my phone away, and I just drank it in and... But it's because I've been to Alaska, and I took pictures, and I came back, and I'm like, oh, it actually looks nothing like what it looked like. It was so much more awesome. But my language fails me to describe it in John's language and Paul's language and even Jesus' language, because he's speaking through humans, fails him about when he says, eye has not seen and ear has not heard. So the best he can say is it's, it's like this. It's like if you go to a restaurant, if you've traveled a lot, they'll say, oh, this, we're going to eat such and such, and it tastes like, yeah, you know. <laughs> By the way, scientists have gone to the trouble to figure out what actually does taste like chicken, so if you're wondering. <laughs> I cannot personally vouch for cane toad, um, but those are, uh, and it's like some sort of a Venn diagram that apparently right in the middle is the sweet spot of tastes like chicken, which is snake, so... You guys, good luck with that. Um, but you understand that when it says it tastes like that, it gives you an idea, but it's not the thing. Like as a chef, if you say it tastes like beef, it's, you're, you're speaking of texture, you're speaking of an ideology, of a flavor, of a thing, and, it's, and yet when it's there, it ultimately won't be that. In music, we talk about it in terms of, well, this band sounds like this band. You know, especially when a brand new band is we're working with and I mean Kipley you know this like you've been in the studio you've made this record and then you got some schmutz like me go out and say what well, sounds like Coldplay there's about a 10 year period where everything sounded like Coldplay and all that is is a bunch of people in dockers and offices with clipboards going hey we need to get something some of that 
uh, Coldplay thing going on. But you know what happened when you listened to that band that somebody told you that sounded like Coldplay? What did you feel? Utter disappointment. Because Coldplay was so much better. This here, it's, it's about a lowering of this is the best I got is it's kind of like gold and that's all I know to say is it's like gold, but it's going to be so much better. And that allows us to muster the courage and the strength to face whatever on this side of heaven is hitting us. The brothers and sisters, again, we're in Williamson County, so we tend to not really think about how difficult it is. But you know, there are families this morning that woke up in, well, let's say Haiti, because some of you guys just got back from there, or Guatemala, or Africa. And they woke up, and what if, if the one thing you've noticed when you've gone to places like this, what do they wake up with? Joy. They go to the bathroom in the woods, they bury it, they go to the well to get the water, but those little children are full of joy because this world is not that much to hold on to, and so they're looking forward to a city, to a place, to a country. And for us, when it says that it's dangerous for us to be rich, it's just because we have a tendency to think, I kind of like air conditioning. And by the way, it's okay to like air conditioning. It's just not okay to agape air conditioning, which I tend to fail regularly. <laughs> David can attest to this. I have only really one requirement for my uh, hotel room in Haiti, and that is air conditioning. I've agape it. But you know what? There have been long days in your lives and long in mine, and some of you even though you live in Williamson County or you live in Murray or Rutherford and it's pretty good, you've had some, you've had the Genesis 3 world sucker punch you. And even in that, that's why C.S. Lewis, Lewis, and we'll talk about in the coming weeks, the problem with pain and the books that he wrote, uh, he talks about heaven. Narnia was about heaven because that hook in us, setting our mind on that, means that Jesus is pulling us this way when the world wants to pull us this way and it gives us the strength and it gives us the courage and it gives us the motivation. The motivation because on this side of heaven, your soul, my soul, is so needy that it needs so much that this world can't contain it. It can't actually give me what I need you're, I'm telling you this, this is where a lot of marriages get in trouble is when I put on my wife the expectation that only God could really fill in my life. If you've been around a while, maybe you've seen one of these bridges that you drive over and it has a weight limit as you drive up to the bridge. Have you ever wondered, are they, are they really serious? Is it really only five tons? Um, I, I've lost my phone with the little thing on it. but there's a, Oh, there it is. There should be a picture up there of a bridge that collapsed in Indiana. <laughs> Answering the question, is it really... Yeah, there we go. That's what happens when you put the weight of something on, on a bridge that it wasn't meant to carry. And I'm telling you that this side of heaven, that the weight of what you need, that this life can't hold it. And so you have to put the weight on heaven. And so I can lean. Do you ever wonder why Jacob, when he wrestled with God, he walked away with a crutch? It's, I believe it's a picture, wood. It was a tree, always in the scripture, speaks of the cross. He was going to walk with a limp that for the rest of his life to be reminded that he would have to lean on God. 
And too many of us lean on each other, lean on our job, lean on our career, lean on our education to carry a weight that it was never meant to carry, a burden that it was never meant to hold. Only heaven can ultimately sustain it. And giving that understanding in our minds. There's a lot of beautiful parks in this area. I, I, I ran into Katie a couple years ago at the, what was the park we were at, Katie? The, oh, it was a secret, but it's not a secret anymore. I was at an undisclosed location for a pastor retreat and walked right into Katie. Roger, yeah, we're at Radnor Lake. I'm in there, we're journaling, and around the corner comes Katie and the men's children. I'm like, hey, I'm supposed to be hiding from everybody. Um, but it's, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's ama- but if you moved in there, this is not a, a knock against the homeless population. Understand that. But what I'm saying is it's meant to be visited, not lived in. And it can't carry the weight of my life. If I move in there, I got to start chopping trees down. If I move in there, I got to start digging holes and building stuff. And before long, the very reason, the very thing that drew me to it is ruined because I put too much weight on it. This world was never meant to carry the weight of you, not the fallen Genesis 3 world, rather the Genesis 1 world where you are whole where every chain is not only broken but disintegrated and until then it gives us the strength the courage the motivation to know that I can't live here I've I've got another home I can pass through here but I'm not going to put down tents I grew up in the middle of nowhere right off you could literally throw a rock across the Oregon trail from my backyard you know what that means it sounds great it's all historical but let me tell you what that really means my ancestors were quitters. <laughs> That's good enough. <laughs> That's close. <laughs> well, this, I mean, it's Nebraska. There are very little to zero redeeming qualities about the place that I grew up with. There's no scenic vistas. Somebody didn't have a picture of how awesome Oregon was. I mean, for crying out loud, even Wyoming, there's something, right? But they stopped because they didn't have the picture of the rest of the journey. And for you and for I, that motivation of understanding what heaven is means we're not going to put down a flag in the ground in Comstock, Nebraska. And someday when I get to heaven, I mean, I'm assuming my great-great-great-grandfather, Eurastus Comstock, is that not the best pioneer name ever? Eurastus, come stock. <laughs> Feel free to make up your own joke. There are children here. Yeah, it's, I swear that's his name. We're going to be like, Eurastus, I mean, seriously. <laughs> what about Nevada? I mean, there's a, something. Did you not know? But how many, I think, of us will get to the other side and we'll put a flag down in Nebraska when we could have had California? And I'm not speaking of salvation, don't get me wrong. What I'm speaking of is the second Corinthians chapter 5 Bema seat judgment that Paul speaks of, and we'll speak in more detail of this. That is not a judgment of punishment. That is the Romans or the Revelation uh, white throne judgment. You don't want any part of that. That's the, I here, judge me by my works, Jesus. And 
He's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself on you. But the Bema seat one for all those who have called upon the name of the Lord. It's about us being in front of Jesus and him saying, man, nice work. This was awesome. You made it to Oregon. And for some of us, we made it to Nebraska, but we're still there. And he says that by the skin, he actually doesn't say this language, but by the skin of your teeth, by fire, you'll be saved. And, and parenthetically, I truly and utterly believe that on the other side in heaven, that if you're there, nobody's looking back going, oh, this blows. I'm going to, in the coming weeks, I haven't asked his permission, but I talked to a, a guy this week that told me a dream of his father in heaven. And, but part of the idea of what the dream was was that he's in this house and he's totally happy and he's totally content. And there's wave, waving wheat. And, but he says, but son, look, on the other side of it, you don't even know there's mansions over there. I'm fine. I'm taken care of. It's all good here. But over there, there's mansions. It's different here is what he said. It's different here. The economy is different here. And what he's speaking of was the Second Corinthians 5 Bema seat judgment saying there's going to be rewards. And the Bible talks about them all the time. We'll all be fully content. And the only way, the only language I have is that if I had a coffee cup and it's full, it's how, how full is it? It's full. And if I had a barrel next to it and it's full, it's still full. Two full containers. It's just one had a greater capacity. Neither one are lacking anything, but they're both full. And maybe that's a little bit of a picture of what it looks like in heaven on the other side for those that have just done what Jesus asked them to do. He didn't ask you to go to Iraq, so don't go. Did he ask you to love your neighbor as yourself? Absolutely. Those of you that have cared for a loved one who's ailing, for those of you that have cared for a parent or a child, or those of you that have just loved on the person next to you, he sees it all and he knows it and he's not forgotten it. And there will be rewards for that because he's a good good father and if we can keep that in front of us those moments of obedience where Jesus said hey I think you should pray for that person and what do you think well that might be the devil because the devil would tell you to pray for somebody right? well, maybe you don't do that but those kinds of conversations in our head if we stop imagining those things of what could go wrong and remind ourselves instead of what is going to go right in heaven. I think it takes a lot of that out of there to give us the strength and the courage and the motivation. And the last thing I'm going to say is he talks a lot about the lamb in Roman or Revelation 22. The lamb, the lamb, the lamb. Now Jesus had already been resurrected. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Why per se is there still a lamb in heaven? And I believe with all of my heart that whatever, whether it's a real lamb or Jesus looks like a lamb, I don't know. But there will be the constant reminder for us that if the lamb dies, you live. Exodus. If the lamb lives, you die. But the lamb didn't live. The lamb did die. And it was slain before the foundations of the earth so that you, just like Captain Black, can look in heaven and say, I'm not worthy, but I'm worthy because of what he did for us. And there's no greater motivation than that. There's no other response to someone giving their life for you than you to give them yours. It doesn't require an extra dose of courage. Romans 12 tells us it's just a logical thing to do to offer your life as a living sacrifice. It just makes sense that you would do that. So today, would you stand with me and let's pray and
And in this coming week, as you're devoting with the Lord and devoting your time to him, maybe add into that a little bit of heaven, of a reminder. Some of us don't need it. Some of us have got loved ones on the other side, and I don't need a reminder because I'm already homesick for a place I've never been. But this week, keeping our, our mind on higher things, on heaven, and see if it doesn't begin to build a little bit of courage and motivation and strength into you to do what Jesus has called and asked of you. Father, would you give us wisdom and strength and motivation and courage that eye has not seen, ear has not heard. This is just our futile attempt, our tiny little attempt at trying to explain the Grand Canyon to a two-year-old. But would you make it come alive in us? Write your will on our hearts. Write your will on our minds that we might live with this uh, motivation to, to live our lives well, to not stop in Nebraska, go all the way to Oregon. In Jesus' name, amen.